Welcome to our no name podcast. Yeah, exactly. Welcome to the anonymous podcast. Welcome to the anonymous podcast. I'm Amanda, and this is Ben. <laughs> you there? Benjamin Kirstein. <laughs> I'm Amanda Ring, and we are both uh, writers, filmmakers, artists, musicians. Uh, oh, I wish I was a filmmaker. I'm just a writer. <laughs> well, well, you write for film. You write for film. That's true. That's and, true. And uh, cultural critics and uh, current uh, extremely angry uh, cabin <laughs> fevered ca- uh, 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 virus victims. Yeah, locked um, locked at home with uh, like everybody else. Locked Nowhere at home to and, go. In shock and in awe at, at everything else happening. Yeah. Fortunately, I'm not in the United States, so I'm not watching my own country go insane. But from afar, yeah. watching the United States go insane, and it's quite something. Yeah. I'm well, fortunately, I'm nestled in California in a very, very blue area mm-hmm. uh, where there, there's some there's some hope for. for us <laughs> out here. But, yeah, I mean, I'm just yeah, I'm just waiting, I, waiting for the the, the 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 for the West Coast to just remove itself. <laughs> from the rest of the country. I, it, I have to say if i was a californian i would totally support secession like i think why it's not like very possible if this if this doesn't if this doesn't end anytime soon they should just do it <laughs> yeah and i mean you know you california alone is what like the third fourth largest economy in the world like yeah, to lose, have, like, you know. I mean, I'm not, I'm not even like officially like a state, you know, a resident, but like, mm-hmm. uh, but like, I'm really a New Yorker. But New York, New York, and California, you know, are are you know, we'll have to just be like sort of flyover buddies. But, <laughs> but California, California can easily like it has all all its own resources. I think it has tons of natural mm-hmm. resources and and manufacturing, and probably can do it do it alone, you know. I was actually, I'm reading um, Norman Mailer right now, and um, he actually ran for mayor of New York in 1967 or 68, and um, he ran on a secessionist platform that New York City should, yeah, that New York City should secede from the United States. (laughs) Well, it's it's hilarious, (laughs) you're laughing, but it's, you know, it's, it's uh, Governor Cuomo, like, literally had to, you know take complete charge of the entire tri-state area otherwise otherwise trump would have just buried it with a hatchet and um did his best he did his best to give the 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 middle finger to uh new york city yeah which is funny because he's from there so it's like yeah well i mean i mean i think that's the point i think i think it's kind of like uh some sort of a subconscious revenge but but this 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 leads us. Wait, oh, go ahead. What are you going to say? Well, that segues us pretty well because we yeah, want to talk exactly. about our script, right? <laughs> yes, yes, we are. We yeah. do. Okay. So a few years ago, we uh, wrote a script about New York City in the 1970s. Uh, a a young TV military. We should, we should make sure to make it clear for a TV series. It's a TV series, yeah, and uh, I mean it could be a TV movie in, in, in multiple yeah. parts. Yeah, true. Um, but it's uh, centered around a young military policeman who just returned from duty in Vietnam, and he's stationed in New York City, um, and he needs to basically uh, help 
help the city and, and also the city's police maintain order in a very chaotic and sort of revolutionary um, uh, environment in New York. Yeah, I mean, it's based on uh, my father's experiences. It's fictionalized. I mean, it's not, you know, um, completely biographical or anything, but, but it's basically based on the fact that when I was a kid, he told me that when he was in the army during that era of Vietnam, that the most dangerous place he ever served was New York City and specifically Bedford-Stuyvesant, which is where the army base was. And he said, like, you would have the army base and the army base was like a fortress. And then you would go right. out and then and the army base was like clean and ordered and, you know, all that stuff. And then he would walk. They would literally just walk right out of the base into like Saigon. You know what I mean? Like it was just right, like, right, right. like it was raw anarchy. Um, and it was a time when New York City was dying and it took something like, what, 20 years for New York to pull itself out of that hole? It did. And, it did. And yeah, go ahead. And it seems like now it's it's being hurled back into that hole by the coronavirus and, you know, uh, well, everything I mean, it's, else. It's the, the city can definitely turn into some kind of a, of a Detroit. But what's, mm. but what's what's different right now is that there's the Black Lives Matter movement, mm-hmm. which is, you know, I guess highlighting why those areas, the Bedford-Syverson is a heavily Black-dominated uh, community, but... Mm. Why, why those areas became full of so much rage and, um, uh, I mean, rage is probably the best word, you know, rage and, yeah. and depression and, um, and yeah. So, I mean, it's, it, yeah. I mean, the first say- scene in our script is, is of him arriving in New York city on like an army, uh, you know, one of those giant cargo planes that they would fly guys back in. And, um, the first thing that happens is he's like picked up by a private or whatever, cause he's an officer and they drive through what's left of parts of Brooklyn after the race riots in, right. you know, 66 and 67, you know? And um, like, that seems to be like black lives matter seems to me to be doing it in a much smarter way because for the most part, they're not rioting. Like there was some in the beginning, but for the most part, you know? Right. Um, well, well the, the, the looting was, the looting was, you know, was horrible was hard was was a horror to watch because it was uh you know it sort of had the same sort of anarchy but it but we're pretty sure that i think it was specific groups that were doing that it wasn't it wasn't coming from like a a general community uh Mm -hmm. uprising but Mm -hmm. there there is that that sort of feeling i mean going back to the secession thing i mean there is that sort of feeling that that the country is not really is is not not really, but is not working for certain groups of people, yeah. and that and that what's happening to them is symptomatic of the entire system that's been toxic really to everybody. Yeah, and, and our and our character is kind of like you know he's like the good Jewish boy, you know, right. like uh, uh, we're both Jewish and my father is Jewish, so that's why we uh, we made him Jewish. But um, he's like the good Jewish boy. And it's like he went off to uh, Vietnam, like before all that really got started. And he like comes back to a completely other America, you know, where so much of what he believed in growing up has like completely broken down. And um, and he's he's kind of like a fly on the wall, mm-hmm. you know, like he, yeah. he's 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 sort of 
Um, you know, he's a part of a minority. It's a more privileged minority, but it still is a minority. And he's got a, he's got a, he, you know, he's also entrenched in kind of white America. Like being, being a Jew inside of the army is, is a bizarre, inside of Completely. the American army is, is a biz, very bizarre experience. Especially um, if you're in, in the military police, which he is, because my father told me that they used to refer to the army medical corps as the Jewish infantry. Um, <laughs> which is not yeah, entirely fair. You know, it's not entirely fair. Yeah. A lot of Jews right. did in, in combat uh, positions. Yeah, like that. But, but it was unusual. Right. Yeah. I mean, you were definitely a minority within a minority if you were a Jew in the army, you know? Right. And so he's kind of like seeing New York through a specific lens of that, but also, you know, he has to, he has to kind of deal procedurally with specific crises that are happening around the city, and some of some of them are focused on the riots and on and on the black communities, but some of them are focused also in the upper class communities and, mm -hmm. and the sort of the different kind of messed up things that could happen in those environments. And yeah, we really wanted all of New York in that era, like we yeah. wanted the whole like you know upstairs downstairs <laughs> of New York City at that moment, you know. Because everything yeah. was nuts, not just not just, you know, race riots and the underclass rebelling, but like across the board, the sexual revolution, feminism, you know, every e even in the highest uh, levels of, of like the New York aristocracy, things are changing drastically and very quickly, you know, which right. seems to be and happening I, again today. I mean, it's quite remarkable how the whole thing well, seems we, to be, you know, repeating. but we, we don't know what's going to happen now because because it's it's the virus is 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 clearing the city out in a way that could either be make room for something more interesting and something healthier, or it could clear itself out and turn it, turn the city into a type of Detroit where, yeah. where you have beautiful areas, totally, you know, emptied out. I mean, I mean, the entire city of Detroit fell apart. I mean, the, the good mm -hmm. stuff and the bad stuff, but you know, that's a very extreme uh, scenario, but mm. We, we don't we don't actually know it, it could end up becoming something more equitable it could be it could become something um less toxic as a work environment you know you're not sitting in little offices and cramped mm -hmm. and you're not jammed on the subways like maybe people are maybe the city starts to breathe again maybe um you know it, it, it we, we don't really know where it's going to go but but this this uh script is definitely going to focus on what happened back then and it and we kind of want to, we kind of wanted to see how it brought us to this point now. Like, we think mm. that there's, we think that there's clues in that era that set up what had happened, what's, how we got to this point now. And I think it's critical to actually, I mean, we can't shoot right now because of the virus, but I think it's mm -hmm. critical in the near future to talk about it. Yeah, um, I mean, uh, one of the things yeah. that we're that's in the script that really struck me is that when the priest police brutality uh, protest started um, my father uh, and I didn't expect this because like a military policeman is not like a civilian cop but it's still a cop like they have that mentality you know right. you always have your eyes open you're always looking for who's you know looks wrong in a certain situation you're always you have a kind of brotherhood you know like it, it's not that dissimilar in some ways and um and he was, and I thought he would be sort of very skeptical of the protest, but in fact, he was very supportive. And he told me that when he was an MP in New York, the New York PD liaison guys used to ask him if at, he uh, like they used to ask him if he wanted to go out at night n-word thumping, you know, 
<laughs> and it's oh, like, wow. it's not, yeah, I mean, this is not new, you know? So like we're right. dealing with like something that, um, you know, uh, was festering for a really, really long time, you know? And I right. think it may even have been worse back then, as bad as it may be now, you know, I think back then there was total impunity. Like there was no, yeah. You know, well, I mean, they they viewed they viewed you know anyone never, never went out doing that. By the way, I want that for the record. He always turned them down. I want that. Right. I want that on the record. <laughs> no, I know it's it's funny, but yeah, I mean, I guess I guess you know a lot of people in the country don't have these you know aren't experiencing this side of the country like they they are just unaware. I think that mm-hmm. there's like suddenly an awareness that there's something very toxic happening within. Within a group of people who are supposed to be protecting us, and I right. think that 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 idea is actually terrifying for everybody because nobody wants to think that that what's supposed to protect you is actually can, can really easily hurt you. Mm-hmm. Um, the, mm-hmm. the, the, the the point of a democracy and like and a first world country yeah. is that <laughs> you're supposed to be able to go to these people and feel safe to say what you need to say or or to complain or um, to report something. And uh, and vice versa, other communities shouldn't feel like they they're being watched, like guard, mm. you know, that they're being fenced in um, and uh, I, I th- watched. I think though, like like we do try to honestly portray the life of a police officer, you know, in that I think we do get across that it's an incredibly difficult job, and yeah. that and that it can be extremely that it just burns you out after a while, you know? Right. And, and in a way it's like, you're fighting a war where, you know, there's no victory, which is also Vietnam, you know? Right. Like the criminals are always going to be there. Crime is always going to be there. So you're essentially fighting an endless war of attrition, you know? And um, that's what Vietnam was like too. Yeah. And, and that's part of the, the, the exhaustion and the rage that's happening now is that, is that I think people are, are realizing that it's like certain things are not ever changing and mm-hmm. it's, it's like a, there's like a despair. And on top of that, the federal government, you know, it looks like it's trying to hang on for dear life for eternity. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, so it just, it just feels like we're, we're all kind of um, uh, wondering what's going to happen going forward. And um but there's a lot of opportunity in this TV to, to talk about that era, but also to, to not, it's not just a history lesson. Like it, it's, we're going to examine what's happening now. Like it's, it's, mm. it's about today, even though we're looking at something that's um, yes, from the pre- from sure. previous times. And I think, I hope anyway, that by presenting it as in the past, that maybe keep people can approach it with a little bit more of an open mind that it won't be as threatening to them. Right. You know? Right. Mm-hmm. Like that you can view the same conditions. If you view them as a piece of history in a strange way, you can engage with them more effectively than if you were viewing them through the lens of the present, because the present can be threatening. Whereas in the past you can actually assimilate it without um, becoming very defensive, you know? Yeah, for sure, and um, and you could we could also you know project ideas of how it could turn out, you know, mm-hmm. because if you're in the '70s, you don't know how the '80s and '90s could turn out. I mean, there's there's you, there's yeah. there's opportunity for a little bit of of almost kind of like a historical fantasy 
mm-hmm. uh, that you can that you can insert into the characters' ideas and visions of of how they think their actions are going to turn out beyond this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I mean, you know, New York, uh, in some ways, saved itself by the skin of its teeth. It could very well have ended up like Detroit, you know. Yeah, well, in the eighties, oh. it was crawling. It was crawling out of it very slowly, but it was also mm-hmm. like Reagan, Reaganomics, and you know, the, the power yeah. suit, the power suit era. It yeah. was, th- there was a lot of like interesting things happening um, in yeah. uh, the, the business world in New York in the in the eighties. Um, and our, but, our, our, I think that comes out too in that the the script is very diverse. Like, there's a lot of characters from a lot of different backgrounds. It's not like yeah. just about you know, um, the Jewish experience of this or the wasp experience of this, like, and my father actually told me that, um, you know, um, his, uh, he commanded like a group of, uh, officers who were from everywhere. Like there was like one guy from the South and one guy who was like an Irish New Yorker and one guy who was, uh, an African American man from like, uh, Alabama who apparently was like seven feet tall and never ever had to draw his gun because he was just like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah, people yeah, just yeah. Like, stepped back, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, um, terrifying. And, uh, yeah. and, uh, and uh, you know, um, so I think like we have a lot of different experiences in it, you know? Um, yeah, well, and- well, we have four, we have four main characters. The, 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 the one that we focus in the most on is the, is the Jewish male character who's the, who's mm-hmm. the military policeman, but we also have, right. um, we're talking about him we, we don't actually know if he'll be the main focus the whole time but there's also uh, a female nurse um right. from a from a she's white but from a privileged background and she yeah. has ptsd from being a nurse in the army mm-hmm. and we have a hispanic um another hispanic female who is the sister of a soldier that died who was in the unit in vietnam, in the unit as the, uh, in vietnam. and she's uh actually trying to climb the court like a uh, corporate ladder but yeah, that comes that comes later on, and then we have uh, another black police officer, um, and we're seeing him handle the procedurals the way mm-hmm. that he can do it. And so being if, a black man in a police right. position, which is in itself yeah. difficult, and also right. being a, I think what's what's cool is that um, he he's essentially of the first generation of African American soldiers who actually had the opportunity to rise. So he's right. very ambitious. He wants to be a lifer in the army and he wants to become an officer and stuff like that, you know? Um, and, and the truth is, is that strange as it is, the army in some ways is the most like, is like the least racially exclusionary of any aspect of American society. You know, right. it's the closest yeah, thing they, to they had, they had. behind meritocracy, you know? Right. They, they had, they had opportunities there to, um, mm-hmm. to, to move up and use their talents and, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I mean the the military generally is is pretty good at that unless it becomes like corrupted like from a Trump presidency. Yeah. <laughs> but, but, but that was a joke. But the, uh, I know. <laughs> the, um, we're we're gonna the, offend somebody in this thing, so. <laughs> I'm trying not to offend anybody. Trying not to. There's a lot of cabin fever, so we don't who knows yeah. what will happen. The exactly. um, the uh, what I was going to say is um, oh no, I just lost my thought. Oh yes, when they when they sent the National Guard in, mm. you know that, that that was when I started I started texting you like, um, like, like a bad <laughs> it happened. It's happened. Yeah, it was like we it's were... happening. Our script our script is happening. Yeah. It's, it, we, yeah. we've got to we've got to move this forward like immediately. Mm. 
I think I think though, like uh, it really one thing that you brought to it, I feel like, is that you really gave it the feel of New York City. You know, yeah, um, well, we wrote a couple of a couple of episodes. We wrote a couple of episodes, and there's one yeah. particularly where um, the main character is off duty and has just dealt with like some really traumatic stuff, and just goes wandering through yeah. work and like ends up in Times Square. And ends up at like a porno movie, which is what was big back then. It was like the right. golden age of porn. And, uh, you know, he's kind of, he beats it with this like group of cab drivers or something, you know, and just kind of wanders through and realizes that he's never going to see any of these people again in his life, you know, right. and mm-hmm. drifts, you know what I mean? And it's like that sense of drifting in the city is very New York, I think. And it's not something I would have picked yeah. up on, you know? Yeah, I mean, I mean, I, I, I was, I was trying to be an artist in New York City in the last few years, and it was, it was, it was, it failed gloriously. But I, I, I did get to wander the city streets while it was still a normal city and not, not covered in a pandemic. And um, I'm glad that I, ha- I'm glad that I did that, even though it didn't necessarily materialize the way that I wanted to mm-hmm. in other ways. But um, because I think, I think that uh, it's going to be a well you know well uh, imbued in the script and in the direction um and it's definitely a very specific new york thing to kind of get you know jump out of your apartment get onto your feet you know start walking start grooving like you start Mm -hmm. you're you're you're, there there's um uh, like it's almost like a wiring and wiring of the nervous system that that Mm -hmm. that sort of gets tuned into new york city and it's very specific feeling um and uh for sure it's kind of like um, it's kind of like what uh paris was supposed to be like back at like the turn of the century or something that it was like a walk oh, yeah. and there's a whole idea oh, yeah. in, in france of the flaneau which is yeah. this someone who just walks the city and takes it all in you know i think yeah, that oh, maybe yeah. this in new york in a way it doesn't well, i mean I was, I was trying to be a flaneur in new york but it, <laughs> this, this, this is uh, this is <laughs> very difficult like in a city that doesn't that's all commerce and business um Mm. but i I did try yeah i mean paris is very particular because it's it's not as it's not as consumer heavy it's like the whole joie de vivre it's it's a little Mm. bit of a different um situation but but new york in the 70s might have had something that was less uh consumer heavy or less gotta get here gotta get there you know, it, and, it, and also more dangerous because New York right. at that point was swiftly becoming the kind of very dangerous place that it was for a lot of the 80s, you know, so it was yeah. exciting in a way you were flirting with a certain amount of danger, you were flirting with possibilities yeah. that could be um, good and bad, you know, right. And but a lot, and a lot of that danger is also, you know, baked into the local politics of and the mm-hmm. and sort of the rate the race situations and mm-hmm. it becomes it becomes like its own yeah the race is being bat- afraid of each other and stuff like that yeah 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 it becomes like its own little sort of battleground um mm-hmm. between the different communities and and the suspiciousness between the communities and you know and a lot of the a lot of the attitudes that people have towards different races were rooted in something that was i don't want to say it was real but it was to some degree a reality you know i mean mm-hmm. like when certain you know the the irish and the italians had their own thing and the black community had its own thing and the jewish community had its own thing i mean new york was very much this sort of immigrant melting pot but 
but it was a, a collection of, of tribes as well yeah yeah and, and they, lived, they lived in they weren't really mixed in the same neighborhood mm. so much it was they had like pockets especially in brooklyn it was very the pockets in brooklyn were very specifically one tribe or another tribe mm. um and then manhattan was really just mostly waspy and you know a few other minorities sprinkled in there but mm. the downtown manhattan like below you know the 50s and the 40s uh, and the streetwise in New York was really not much going on. Um, yeah. there, were, there weren't there weren't a lot of residents there. You had a bunch of artists that were living down, mm. but it wasn't it wasn't like a and there were certain pockets that were residential, but it's not like it is now, uh, where you have just tons of young people, young professionals, and mm. and condos and whatever. I remember you telling me that you spoke to your parents about the riots. And you told me that essentially each community dealt with it differently. Like the Jews basically hunkered down. The Italians built barricades in the streets (laughs) and stuff like that. Like it's very, this is all stuff that I really didn't know. Like I, I, each, each tribe sort of reacted to it in a different way. I mean, it's like they brought what they brought, what they brought, like the shtetl mentality from Europe Mm -hmm. is what they brought to, to Brooklyn. I mean, you know, the, if, if, however the Italians would have reacted in the small town in Italy, that, that's mm-hmm. what they know. And that's how they reacted. They, they weren't reacting like American, quote unquote. You know what mm. I mean? It was, yeah. it, 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 that was American, whatever that means is not something that was New York. It was, it, it's like a different yeah. thing. They weren't as assimilated. No, they weren't assimilated at all. I, I, and, uh, and I feel it even in myself, like when I, when I travel to Europe, I, it, I feel very connected to that mentality and that culture. Mm. It, it it's, makes a lot of sense to me. It doesn't feel very far removed. Like I don't, I don't yeah. feel like it was, it, like, like even though it's a couple of generations back, from being from you know the Europeans in my family, it still feels very very close. Yeah, like I know when you and I this is like we saw we were talking about Rosemary's Baby, and we oh, yeah. both <laughs> it almost simultaneously. This is a Holocaust movie. You know oh, what I mean? Yeah, like, that's right. Yeah. Movies about the Holocaust, <laughs> like, you know, like and that was like yeah, like I don't think were it not for our backgrounds of, of, you know, Ashkenazi coming from Ashkenazi Jewish culture, I don't think we would have picked up on that, you know, but I think yeah, it's, I, it's, I mean, Polanski is a Holocaust survivor and I think he brought a lot of that to the movie, you know, yeah. so it's like, well, I mean, yeah, I mean, part of Polanski's problems, you know, are, are probably related back to, yeah. to severe, you know, severe, severe, severe trauma. Oh, yeah. in the Holocaust. Oh, yeah. that's, not a, that's not an apologist thing. It's just, just stating it as, as I oh, think it is. Totally obvious. I mean, no question. Yeah. That does stuff to you, you know? Yeah. Well, the Holocaust is, is, a, is it actually a really interesting topic, it, how it was, how it was dealt with in New York um, when yeah. the survivors started coming over. Um, I wonder how the Holocaust survivors felt when the riots were happening. It must have been like completely yeah. terrifying. I mean, you know, yeah. I mean, it was for everybody, but they must have felt like it's happening again. Like, you know, for sure. Have... Well, I mean, I think I think there was already like a sense of like the, the black community was was like a very exotic other. Mm. You know, if you if you came from a small town in Eastern Europe, you never saw a black person ever, right. and like yeah. neither did any of your ancestors. So I think there was already like a sense of fear from just something that was very very different. Mm. And um, but I mean, yeah, I mean, they could definitely ask around um, and see uh, and see and, and and see what they were what they thought about it. But yeah, um, 
for sure, like a lot of people in that in the 70s were leaving the city, even leaving Brooklyn for the suburbs. And I like I like I think my parents were were even thinking thinking wondering if they would go to the suburbs or you know mm. like how like yeah yeah I mean they were they were basically living in a suburb anyways it wasn't really um, a big deal but like th- there were a lot of people that left uh, the mm. boroughs and uh, Manhattan in that time and at the beginning and now, of the too like the era we're writing about is the beginning of the suburbanization of previously urban communities and yeah. the flight phenomenon and the sort of the way that the um the city is hollowed out in a way and only the people who can't afford to leave stay you know well i mean but nowadays i mean people are leaving because because of the virus and not Mm. really because of crime but 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 but, you know a city that's falling apart and not can't manage itself is would be the second possibility for the second wave of people Mm -hmm. leaving like Mm -hmm. the first wave is like people are like we we can't deal with all living in such a close contact environment when we don't when we don't really need to be uh living this way and we're not we can't mm-hmm. enjoy any of the city activities because you know so yeah you know a lot of people are leaving for that reason but yeah the city would just be in your crime, opinion yeah. God, yeah in your opinion like is new york gonna recover quickly from <laughs> now or do you think that this is the beginning of a, another downward slide for the city? I really don't know. I think mm. uh, I think that there's like a downturn was happening anyways. Like it was kind of overdue because it, it was already baked up and so expensive. Mm-hmm. Um, it was already it's already so high that like a down um, was going to happen. But I don't I don't know. I mean, I think it just depends on what happens with the virus. Like if they if they can't control it, mm. I think the big cities are pretty much kaput you know but yeah. if they if they can control the virus like if they're able to to work in an office and get on the subway and uh and where and with the masks and whatever cleaning protocols and keep the numbers under control then it will be all right you know but if it, if it if this drags on for years and years like it's that's bad that's really bad news i i actually think like the city itself may become obsolete because Everyone can work almost every yeah because so many people now can work online remotely, and obviously not everybody can, but but a a much larger proportion can than had been working remotely before this pandemic. And me and I think honestly, people are going to realize we don't really need offices. We don't need people living living in close concentration. You know, we don't need long commutes and stuff like that. So I think no. uh, cities will disperse. Like I think like large amounts of urban populations are just going to like disperse out and, and just work online, you know? Well, I mean, I, I've, been, I've been championing for a couple of years already, like in, the idea that, that people should, should go and build, rebuild the small towns across the country. Like, you mm-hmm. know, that, that, the, that the young hip people should go and, and build like small hip towns <laughs> all around, you know, dotted all around. And, Intentional uh, communities. Yeah, and like build build interesting cultural little epicenters, you know, and mm-hmm. and just get just stop just stop like, you know, if everything's so expensive and the prices are never going to go down and the and the and the government's never going to give you money and never going to give you free health insurance or whatever or UBI, like if none of that's going to happen, then you got to take care of yourself, you know. Yeah. And I yeah. I feel I feel like that's the only way to do it. Um, but I mean, the only the only problem with this is that if there's a virus. You can't travel, so it's like 
once you leave, if you can't get on a plane to hop around to other towns or go back to the city or leave the country or visit or tour, then mm -hmm. that's like, that would, I think, make a lot of people afraid to leave the big city because they don't want to feel trapped out mm. in the middle of nowhere where they can't travel yeah. safely. Yeah. I have, I, think the idea of, yeah. I have, I have a question going back to the era when, when that we're writing about yeah. what, what are our fur favorite sort of 1970s urban decay movies? Because okay, it, was a, yeah. it was almost a genre unto itself in that yes. era, you know? So my favorite, I think has to be taxi driver. Like okay, that, that to me is like the ultimate sort of expression of like urban collapse. And then there's like a couple of Sidney LeMay films and mainly like, I suppose Prince of the city, but that's a bit later, but um, especially like dog day afternoon, you know, is like, is like really a vision of like New York city just going completely crazy. Like only in the seventies sort of, you know, um, thing. Yeah. So like I, I think like those two movies to me really sort of one being a really dark psychodrama and the other being a kind of very black comedy, you know, sort of sum up for me the kind of the kind of urban collapse of that of that right. era, you know. I mean, I think I mean I don't know if you're gonna ask me what my favorite movie is, it's pro I'm probably gonna have to say Saturday Night Fever because I, I just <laughs> love I, you of know, New York in that moment, a snapshot of New York in that moment. Yeah, because I just love the I love the dancing and the grittiness of it, and you know, and uh, the the little Upper West Side apartment that that they end up in with the girl, and <laughs> I just like that that whole scenario. But thankfully, the Criterion Collection had a, a very short run. It was too short. I, mm -hmm. I complained to them about this, but they <laughs> ran a, a like a collection of seventies movies um, on uh, their streaming channel. Mm. And I managed, I managed to sneak in a few of them. Um, I was watching uh, Foxy Brown. I watched oh, right. uh, yeah, Three Days of Condor, Shampoo, and Isolora Mars. Mm. See, yeah. I think actually yeah. with the, with the Foxy Brown, like in a way, the greatest expression of that sort of urban breakdown was the black exploitation film. You know, oh, yeah. that was yeah, the exactly. that was essentially the hardest hit by it. You know, right. and, and in, a, in a kind of a funny way, they channeled that into almost a kind of like black pride, you know, like yeah, yeah, yeah. deal with this, you know, they, they were just like, let's just let's, let's just let's just go <laughs> go into the farce of it all the way, mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. you know, let's yeah. Just yeah, dive right in. Oh, I mean, the, the man who fell to earth is 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 a great 70s movie in terms of at least yeah. stylized. Yeah, that um, no, is a great movie. Yeah. Wow. David Bowie's yeah, like yeah. effect unto himself in that film. Like yeah, he's the ultimate alien. Like who would you get yeah. to play an alien except David Bowie? You know. Yeah, and I had the I had the great fortune of seeing David Bowie wandering through the farmers market in New York City, and uh, <laughs> <laughs> we made we made strong eye contact for about a few seconds, and well, that, then that, then it was over. <laughs> See, I actually think like we need to give a shout out too to Pam Greer, who's oh, like, yeah. <laughs> who's like, I think like with the cool thing, the thing with Pam Greer is that I think she was in, in terms of being an actress, in, in yeah. terms of her image, you know, as a star, she was probably like the toughest female um, character, you know, yeah. who 
had ever been in, in American cinema. I mean, obviously there's people like, you know, uh, there, there, there were precedents and stuff like that of strong, strong actress, strong women in American movies, right. you know what I mean? Like Catherine Hepburn and stuff like that. But she was definitely right. the toughest, you know? She was very, very tough. And she also, she, I always thought that she looked a little bit Indian. Like she has, she, her, her, she's kind of like a woman of color. Like to me, she can sort of, mm-hmm. have, she has like a bit of like a pan uh, woman of color look. <laughs> I don't know mm-hmm. if that makes any sense. Yeah, no, um, I, I, what you mean, yeah. There's like, a, there's something, there's something that's like almost like y- you can't, you can't, ethnicize I don't know if that's a word but you you can't pinpoint her very very specifically and mm-hmm. I think that gives her that gives her a power a certain kind of power on screen too because you can't write her off mm. uh, into a group um you can't stereotype character. her yeah 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 that's what I mean yeah yeah well, in a strange way I feel like uh um it's too bad that so many of those films were so low budget and made in such an exploitation film kind of way, right. you know, yeah. it kind of, like, it kind of, like you're saying, it kind of turned the genre into farce. It's very easy to parody, you know, like, right. I don't know. Have right. you ever seen I'm going to get you sucker? No, I haven't seen it. That was a great parody of black exploitation movies. And the thing is uh, that was from the early nineties or late eighties. And like okay. the great the funny thing about it is that you watch it. And at certain points, it's like, this is not a parody. This is just like straight ahead. <laughs> like they're just playing it like completely straight. You know what I mean? But just the genre yeah. itself at certain points is so silly. You know, it's, it's kind of too bad that no one ever, ever got the chance to make like, like maybe shaft, I suppose might be an example, but like okay. no one, no one got to make a really great sort of like high budget prestige black exploitation movie the way like right. the exorcist is like a prestige horror film or something like that you know well, well, well we we should we should add we were having this conversation before we got started but we should add that that there was a specific tone in the 70s films and, and that's why a lot of filmmakers are obsessed with that era but there yeah. there's a kind of there's a casual way that they I mean, I think so. You might disagree, but there's some, there's something very casual and very uh, maybe earthy or grounded. Um, uh, it's maybe even a little bit sexy. Like there, there, there's something there's something um, uh, about the way that they communicated on screen that that you wouldn't get that today unless you really worked mm. hard to mm. find actors who can pull that off. Um, I think honestly, it has something to do with the film stock. I mean, really, like, yeah, I think that I think that the film stock that they were using at the time was just naturally gritty. And it just gives everything this look of a kind of um, um, not griminess, but there's a kind of texture to it that's very, very real. And I think it just makes the images like um, pop out at you in a way. That now when everything's digital and they can like screw with the color in any way they want, you know what I yeah. mean? And movies becoming very slick and monochromatic almost, you know, whereas in the seventies you had great, um, uh, a kind of, I, I don't know how to explain it, a kind of gaudiness next to a kind of grittiness. Like I'm especially yeah. thinking of taxi driver, you know, where like the colors almost smear in this kind of almost like, uh, um, 
um, sleazy kind of way, you know, like a red light district kind of way. And then in the, in the less colorful scenes, there's this kind of grittiness to it, you know, and it makes the interactions between the characters you're watching, I think, seem very, very immediate and very, very real. Like, yeah. I mean, I, mean I, hear, I hear it I hear it in the sound though too like I hear it in, in their mm. in their dialogue like I uh, in, the, in Laura Mars like you know Faye Dunaway she she doesn't have that kind of that breathy white woman actress thing that they mm. that, that that was mm. like eh, like I, I can't I can't imitate it but it there was something <laughs> uh, there was at least not not on demand but there, mm. there was something kind of really girly and breathy about the way that um, female actresses were um, how they were acting on screen. And she, and even though she has that look like that typical look, she doesn't present herself that way at all. Mm. Mm. And uh, like, she has a very soft manner, but she doesn't come off um, childish. You know what I mean? It's it, there, there's like, there's, and, and shampoo has a lot of, uh, good examples of that also yeah. and that's an LA that's an Los Angeles movie too and uh, despite all the, the superficial uh, stuff that they talk about you don't feel that in the way that they're behaving mm. Um, mm. I like that movie a lot that was that was, that was a good I, I love that movie because it's so prescient to me you know yeah. like the ending of that movie the bleakness of the ending of that movie yeah. I think the sexual revolution was still so new at that time that people hadn't really cottoned on to some of its nastier side effects, you know, and shampoo in a way was ahead of its time. Cause it's basically saying, this is all going to just end in loneliness. Like this is going to end in, <laughs> you know, this is not going to be yeah. good. You know how this thing's going to end, you know? And yeah. uh, I think I mean, it was the, way ahead of its time, you know, in, in that, in that sense. It also really gets the tone of LA, which is kind of, you got this like urban, this like dark urban sort of societal stuff happening. And then you're looking out over these hills, you know, it's like, mm. there's kind of like this contrast of like this nature and then this dark human interaction, sort yeah. of fucked up human interaction thing happening. They're, the two of them are right side, very side by side. I feel like that's very LA. And also, I, mean, I don't know LA that well, but it, but my my sense my feeling of LA is that, that mm. makes sense. I mean, I, I think like uh, especially like in an era of urban crisis. I mean, shampoo is still sort of about urban crisis. It's just the crisis of the upper class, right? Yeah, and 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 in in like in like uh, in the hot industries, you know, mm-hmm. in, uh, glamour industries, for sure. Yeah, Robert Town wrote that movie. Who's my favorite? Uh, one of my favorite writers, period, but definitely one of my favorite screenwriters and someone who like really inspires me. Like, I, I kind of like whenever I get stuck, I'm like, well, how would Robert Town get out of this? <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> like, because what Town has that I love is that he very rarely um, has his characters say anything explicitly. It's always kind of evoked, you know, like his characters always sort of talk yeah. around things. And then like at, at the climactic moment, they'll finally kind of say it. You know, like like the famous scene right. in Chinatown where she's like my sister, my daughter, and she like finally confesses that there was this incestuous, you know, um, relationship. Yeah. And for me in Shampoo, it's the moment when uh, when uh, the guy turns to Julie Christie and he says something like, well, what would you like to do? And she's like, well, first of all, I'd like to suck his cock. And it's like, <laughs> it's like you know, because it's like she's finally like, bam, you know what I mean? Like she finally just like hits him in the face with it, you know? 
And like, that's talent to me. Like, like they talk around and around and around until finally like, boom, somebody says it, you know, I love, I I love, you know, I think that's actually like uh, one of the big things in, in American cinema is, is that it never, it's always skirting the truth. Like Mm -hmm. it's always skirting around emotional truth and, and, I mean, maybe it's even like endemic in American culture also that people are very like sort of passive aggressively avoiding yeah. uh, certain certain things. Because I don't think that you see that in Israeli film at all or in no. Israeli culture. No. Um, but I think it's very specific to American film. And it, it also, I think, is what is part of what built the idea of cinema. Like that cinema yeah. is kind of like you're floating in this confusion and these ideas and this these visuals and the sound but it's going to all like sort of come to something. By yeah. And I mean, the taxi driver is kind of a perfect example of that. Yeah. Right. I mean, television is a whole different ball game, but, um, True. but I think, I think that each episode can have its point of, uh, of sort of coming to coming to truth moment. Catharsis. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then, you know, you have to stay tuned for the next one. <laughs> <laughs> So on that note, we want to wrap yeah. it up. Yeah, I think that's good. I think uh, we uh, shed light on what we yeah. are busy, what we're up to. Yeah. So and, uh, anybody we're, interested, we're gonna, we're gonna call talk, us. We're gonna t- <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely reach out to us. Um, and uh, but we're gonna talk more about um, some of the films we're watching in quarantine, mm. and um, our our very special take on all those things. Yeah, what are we? What are we? I know we're thinking of a racer head. Maybe we would talk about and uh, yes, yeah, racer head's a good movie for when you start to lose your mind. Yeah, home exactly. all the time. It takes place almost entirely in an apartment, so quite. Perfect. Oh, we were maybe we we're gonna maybe do some Wong Kar Wai uh, in the yes, middle of love. I really should. I love Wong Kar Wai, and, and uh, I've been watching some noir. I've been watching some Bogart movies. Oh, cool! I love those. Yeah, yeah, it's good stuff. Like the Maltese Falcon and stuff like that? Yeah, I was watching In a Lonely Place. Speaking of mm. loneliness. Um, <laughs> that was great. That was I've a never great seen movie. Yeah, yeah I, 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 you know, I, I love that, like, Hollywood fantasy. I love that that kind of old Hollywood glamour fantasy mm. stuff. It's, mm. uh, I mean, I'm so close to it right now. It's like, it's like right around me, you know, in, in yeah. Los Angeles. Yeah. But there's, there's, um, that was a very just fun era to, to, to play in. Yeah. And, and I mean, and I in watched, a way, um, not in Eraserhead, but David Lynch is one of the last filmmakers who really, um, does that kind of classic Hollywood glamour thing, especially with like the way he, use, he filmed women. women. Yeah. Yeah. He's one mm-hmm. of the last ones to really, to really do that. Sorry, yeah, you were I saying? Mean, the, something no, no, I mean, the, the, those, those hairstyles were very very mm-hmm. flattering the the, for, the the 40s and prior mostly the 40s yeah. but um I, I don't know if the 30s are really that well, flattering we, but we really need to do one on, on classic hollywood we really should well yeah, we should definitely do that and i mean i love i love the old musicals and a lot of the a lot of the um the pre-code films i've been watching are mm-hmm. fantastic and super experimental and i love that like i love this sort of experimental sort of kaleidoscope of dancing and music and mm. random narrative and it doesn't necessarily fit exactly uh you know um 
a perfect idea of how a script should be. I, I just, I think there's a lot of interesting and inspirational stuff in, in old Hollywood. And I'm like, and I'm like, there's all these talented people quarantined in uh, Los Angeles <laughs> right now. Like, why don't we just, you know, get them all tested and gather them into a soundstage and see what happens. I think it's a fantastic idea. Utopia. I mean, I think that would be utopia. Yeah. <laughs> all right. So we'll call it, we'll call it on that note. And uh, okay. I guess we'll see everybody on the next one. Okay, great. Thanks for listening. Thanks to all.